You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Before we get started, I just want to let you know this episode has some strong language. Just a fair warning, but stick around. I am so excited to have Danielle Serrett, a really wonderful human being, Ben, and someone who, you know, I've talked to you about because you know her work, but you don't know her. No, no, right. I mean, I've been reading all about restorative justice and her organization, Common Justice, but, but you worked with her personally, right? Yeah, yeah. We know each other from my work at the Vera Institute. And I got to tell you, I have had a dozen conversations with Danielle. I've broken bread with her. I know her really well. And she's going to talk about restorative justice in the context of her nonprofit work, Common Justice. So let's, uh, let's break down a little bit what restorative justice is. Yeah. So in the broadest sense, it is a process whereby two people come together, a harmed party and the person who's done harm. So like what many people would say, like the, a victim of a crime and the person who did the crime, the victimizer. That's right. The perpetrator or the offender are the kind of co- criminal justice terms. But Danielle refers to them as the responsible party. And restorative justice has been around for millennia, often associated with indigenous communities as a way for people to be restored back to the community. Something has gone terribly wrong between two people and they come together and they talk it out. And usually there's some form of accountability. There's some form of the person who's done harm doing something to restore the relationship, hence restorative justice. But you're saying this idea of like bringing those two people together. That's right. And having them figure out like, 
what accountability is and how to heal the harm, that's not abnormal. That's like just human. It's not only human, but it's very old. We've gotten away from it. And I think for Common Justice, which has been around for about 15 years, it is a Brooklyn-based nonprofit. The practitioners work directly with the courts and even with the prosecutors where a young person in general who has committed an armed robbery or an assault or some other horrible violent thing gets brought before the court and there's an option in that case based on the victim's perspective or the harmed party to say whether or not that person should get restorative justice. What's so amazing about this is that we are talking about people who did violent crimes. Yes. And often when we think of like the violent offender, those are the people that we don't want to deal with at all. That's right. What Danielle Serrett is doing is actually dealing with people who are involved in violence, who committed violent crimes, who are victims of violent crimes, and figuring even those people who have been dismissed by all the sort of criminal justice reforms, that they could there's an alternative to prison. Yeah. I'm not even sure everyone knows what you mean by dismissed by criminal justice reform. Say a little bit more about that. I mean, yeah. So like the idea that, that most of our reforms for the past dozen years have been about nonviolent and mostly nonviolent drug offenders. That's right. Like that's where we've sort of thought of mercy. Yeah. And that's why Danielle's so important, because she is providing the actual evidence and the roadmap to doing alternatives to violence, meaning that this isn't alternatives to drug offenses, this is alternatives to violence. We should not simply be locking people up away for violence because we haven't given the harmed parties what they want. The harmed party wants accountability. Yes, like she said, it's not because of mercy, it's because the people who were harmed, they wanna be restored. This is for them. Yeah, so let's get to Danielle. I am so excited to have Danielle Sarad, a really wonderful human being. Some of my best friends are just really delighted to be able to have Mm -hmm. an important conversation with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. And Danielle, Khalil and I were just talking about how back in October, how President Biden had pardoned all of these people in the federal system who were convicted of simple marijuana possession. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. And when I say all these people, we mean a few thousand. And, you know, what we were talking about is like, you know, maybe since 2009, we've been taking these sort of first steps on criminal justice reform and really just sort of like first steps. And, and you know, what Biden did is, again, nonviolent drug offenses, of of seeing some kind of leniency. And the flip side of that is that we're not really changing how we think about violence of people who both committed violent acts and people who suffered from them. And that's where your work comes in. And that's what we want to start maybe talking about. To really change the criminal justice system, that's what we have to do, right? We have to dig into these issues of violence. I think you're exactly right. And just from a numerical perspective, more than half of people locked up in the United States are locked up for crimes of violence. Right. And so if we want to see a transformative reduction in the number of people locked up, we have to take on crimes of violence. The math doesn't work out otherwise. And to be even clearer, even a transformative reduction of 50% doesn't bump us out of our spot 
as the nation that has incarcerated more of our own people than any other in all of human history. Yeah. Right. So it's a good aspiration to get at least that far. And we will not get farther without dealing with violence. And while I celebrate any shrinkage of the criminal legal system, like I believe every single day of every single person's freedom is a sacred thing. Right. So that means one person getting free a day earlier is a sacred thing. At the same time, I know that even trees that are trimmed at the edges continue to grow. Right. Right. right? Like the question is, what's happening at the root? And I believe the root of the criminal legal system in this country, the place that where it continues to get its nourishment is our relationship to violence. And that until we upend that, we'll keep doing the same thing in, in slightly altering form, but but not much more than just trimming and pruning. Man, you came on the show just throwing haymakers. <laughs> You're just like, you got it. You started it. You brought up this question of violence. Like I was just gonna take that casually. <laughs> Someone listening to you describe this might still have a hard time wrapping their head around like the actual experience is there, I mean, given the hundreds of cases that you've supervised with your team at Common Justice, and I've heard you tell stories, you're already one of my best friends, so I've heard some of mm. these stories. I think people would really benefit from just hearing, you know, just, just a snippet of someone or a community's life that, that have experienced what you're talking about. So, you know, I only tell stories I have permission to tell. And so this is one of those. And it's one of our earlier cases. And the harm party in it was an immigrant to this country. He was working for cash in a kitchen in midtown Manhattan. Mm -hmm. He was on his way home from work. And on his way from the train to his house, he was robbed and really brutally assaulted. And mm -hmm. he experienced really standard post-traumatic stress symptoms, right? So he experienced hypervigilance, or as he put it, he was whenever anyone walked up behind him, even quote unquote, a little old lady, like his mind would race and his heart would race mm -hmm. and his stomach would- Just fear, just act physical fear. And trauma. And because of that, he was withdrawing from many things in his life. He withdrew from his ESL classes. He wouldn't go out anywhere with his partner. You know, he was exercising all this different kind of care to try and avoid those circumstances where he felt so afraid and so activated. Mm. And so his life, all these good things in his life get lost to that experience, right? So just so we're clear, the perpetrator, I'm sorry, the, the responsible party, see, I'm learning, the responsible mm -hmm. party is actually apprehended, yeah, arrested, apprehended, processed. arrested, charged, is facing a significant prison sentence. And mm -hmm. and is this person sitting in jail? And how old, how old are yeah. these people roughly? The responsible party's 20, the harm party's 24, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And he consents you know, to him being in the program. We go through that preparation and we get to the circle process and we're going through it and through it. And partway through the responsible party says, every man in my family older than me has served at least a decade in prison. And he said, wow. you know, my older brother served 11 years and every one of those 11 years, he won the prison boxing league championship. Hmm. Oh, wow. And my brother yeah. is the one who taught me how to fight. And that night on the street, I showed you the wrong end of it. But he's also the one who taught me mm. to defend myself. And if you wanted, I would teach you that too. Wow. And one important thing about a circle process is if you don't have the talking stick, you can't talk. So <laughs> I can't be like, um, may I please consult my general counsel before we agree, right? Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> as the vision of risk of, like moves before my eyes, right? <laughs> but I don't have the stick, so I just shut up. Like, And it goes to the harm party. He says, I would love that. And so after some time, we set up 
a training time at a local dojo with a martial arts instructor present to yeah. watch over it. Cause to be really great at something, you have to know what you don't know. And we do not know that. Mm-hmm. And in that process, the responsible party teaches the harm party how specifically how to free himself from certain constraints. Wow. Right. And he, he starts modeling by modeling this responsible person, right? The one who did it is standing as though he's being restrained. And he's coaching the harm party through the process of how to break free of that as he models it. So just to be clear, because I'm looking at you, right? We're having this conversation, but I can actually see you talking. And you're literally saying the person who gave this 24-year-old mortal fear after having been assaulted and robbed, the responsible party has the victim in a bear hug, teaching him, about to teach him how, how, to, how to get First, out of it. The harm party has the responsible party in a bear hug, to put it nicely, right? Like, <laughs> okay. And so... The harm party is the one doing the constraining first, right? While the responsible party okay, is demonstrating how to release from that. And then they switch. And this survivor wow. is being held in the same position by the same person. Wow. Whose actions are the cause of all that pain. Wow. Only this time he's coaching him and how to get out, right? And he's like, okay, a little's left. Okay, that's the spot, right? You know, like over and over. Mm. And first he's holding him pretty lightly. But as the harm party starts to learn it, he's holding him more and more strongly until he's holding him with all his strength as he did that day. And over and over, the harm party is breaking free. Man, wow. So we close the session after that. We go home. The next day, the harm party, the survivor, calls me on my cell phone, which is sort of widely understood to be for emergencies. And he called me and I said, hello. And he said, hi, Danielle, I'm just calling to tell you nothing happened which didn't immediately sound Mm. like an emergency. Um, But I asked Mm. him, can you say more? It can be a very useful question. Um, And I said, can you say more? And (laughs) he said, I just walked by a six foot four man and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. Right? Meaning his mind didn't race, his heart didn't race, his stomach didn't turn. And Mm. he had about half an hour before he went to work. So he went to Times Square so he could be around as many people as possible. Actually, contend that this is the only truly positive mm. story about Times Square. Gauntlet <laughs> Throne. <laughs> so, see if you can find another. I don't think you can. And he's there on the phone with me, and he's, you know, in the crowd, and he's like, hold on, I see a tall one, right? And you hear him like <laughs> crossing the street, and he says, nothing, nothing. Mm. Like, tell me he didn't deserve that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. When we talk about all of the reasons we talk about incapacitation and deterrence, and blah, blah, blah. like, what? in the whole moral fuck would give us the authority to say he did not deserve that, especially if simultaneous to him getting that healing, we could ensure, and we have now ensured more than a decade out from that case, that that young man never committed another act of violence. It's a decade later and the responsible party has not committed another act of violence. Wow. So I'm like, if we as a people, right, if we know a way that we can keep communities safe and heal the pain of survivors, like what is the moral basis for our going up to survivors and tell them we have made a decision to deny you this opportunity because of this age old, largely disproven theory called deterrence? Yeah, absolutely not. I'm hearing that story and I'm like, I'm having trouble catching my breath. I'm so moved by it. And I guess I want to hear, which is what a cynic would say, that that's not a story of just two incredibly exceptional individuals. Like, you know, the movie. Like, I want to hear that this is like... Yeah. So I'll say two things about it. Like, one is 
there are 50 stories like that, right? And they're not all, this one's a little more dramatic, but there are 50 stories Mm -hmm. where the thing somebody wanted, they could only get from the person who hurt them, including when what they wanted was answers. Like as survivors, we want to know why me? Was it a real gun? Was it something I said? What would you have done if I fought back? If I didn't fight back, did you know what I was going to use that money Mm. for and the impact it had when you took it, right? There are things that we can only get from the person who hurt us. Wow, this is so interesting. We're going to hear more from Danielle after the break. find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. We're back with Danielle Serrett of Common Justice. We are hearing from you, Danielle, these amazing stories of what's happened when people have a chance to come together to talk about these terrible incidents of violence. So there are countless stories. There are people who wanted to meet each other's children after the circle. There are people who stayed in correspondence, people who worked out together, people who met at the spot of the incident every day at the time it happened and shook hands just to overwrite that person's experience of that place with something positive, right? So there are countless things like that. really powerful. And there are these other stories where the agreements are fairly average, where they aren't like brothers to each other in the end, where they don't embrace Mm -hmm. and where they heal 
and where neither of them hurt anyone ever again. And I actually believe those are just as beautiful. Like restorative justice isn't yeah. actually like a matchmaking service. You know, like, <laughs> like our aspirations isn't like how many brother-like friendships have we formed, right? And I sometimes I struggle telling these stories because they're too beautiful. And we're so used to these. These are the stories we tell, right? We either tell of someone who wants the death penalty or someone who forgave the person who killed her child. And now that person has Thanksgiving at her house. And Mm. like most of us aren't that person. But I think about like one of our harm parties who in that outreach conversation elected to have the person take part in common justice, like the way he described it is he said, fuck him, but fuck jail. Mm. I've thought about writing an essay where that's the whole content of the essay. And then it's like 80 pages of footnotes that support the legitimacy of both those claims. (laughs) (laughs) But actually it's incredible. Like as a survivor myself, I have worked arduous decades to not think often about the person who hurt me. Mm. Right. And so Mm. for someone to be like, I don't really think about it much is extraordinary, right? And not because they've suppressed it, not because they've numbed it, uh, but because it no longer constrains and shapes their daily choices from when they wake up in the morning to when they go to sleep and whatever comes to them in those dreams at night. Wow. Part of the choice that survivors are making is not just what you've described so beautifully and compellingly, but is also the practical reality that people come back home. That's right. Like one of the first cases we had that this young man robbed and assaulted a 14 year old boy. And so his mom was the one who got to consent because he was underage. Right. And Mm. by that point in the process, the person who did it was facing three years in prison that had been negotiated down from much higher offer at the beginning. And when I reached out to her to see what she wanted to have happen, she said, you know, when, This young man, she did not call him a young man. I will not use the word she used. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. this young Mm -hmm. man first hurt my child, first I wanted him to drown to death. Hmm. And then I wanted him Hmm. to burn to death. But then I realized as a mother, I don't want either of those things. I want him to drown in a river of fire so I don't have to choose. And then she said, but three years from now, my nine-year-old child is going to be 12. And he's going to be coming from to and from school and to and from his aunt's house and tune from the corner store alone. And one of those days he's going to walk by this young man. And I have Mm. to ask myself on that day, do I want that man to have been upstate or do I want him to have been with y'all? And so what she's doing is exactly what you described, Khalil, right? She is prioritizing her son's safety and the safety of kids like him over her emotional desire for revenge. Now, like as a mother myself, I don't know that I could do that. And I don't know that I actually should have to. I don't know that it's a parent's responsibility to be able to make such a practical choice. But I do believe it's the criminal legal system's responsibility. Like, I don't believe a system has the right to choose some conceptual feeling of revenge over all the practical evidence of what actually produces safety. That's right. I've heard you as a friend, as a colleague, as a public a scholar around these issues and, and educating the public around this, I've heard you lean into the reality that violence is everywhere. And Danielle, I, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong. Like, how many times have you heard someone say, We never talk about the violence in the community? And I'm like, You haven't been listening to people like Danielle or 
once for myself, you know, here I am at the Schomburg Center working late one night and Al Sharpton has a bullhorn outside my my office window talking about stop the violence mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and is literally engaging in a public rally around this issue. What's the expression when you say you are in the business of ending violence, right? That's right. Well, and I think you're right. And I think people who live in communities or families where violence is common are talking about it one way or another all the time. Like all of us mm -hmm. want to be safe. We want our children to be safe. We want our loved ones to be safe. When that isn't present for us, there is not a day we're not considering what we could possibly do to secure that safety for the people we care about. And I think at the same time, part of what happens is that people in communities racked by violence, they consider what would keep me safe. And their answers are things like, we need early childhood education. We need decent schools. Mm. We need clean water. Mm. We need mental health care. Mm. We need hospitals. Mm. We need educators to be paid a living wage. We need to be paid a living wage in all the service industries we work in. And when people say all of that, they are talking about violence, right? It doesn't right. register in the public discourse as that because we refuse to think about violence as something that's produced by systemic factors. And on top of that, people are also talking about violence in the narrowest sense. And very often they are solving it fully apart from the criminal legal system. Fewer than half of victims call the police in the first place. Fewer than half the people who are the victims of violent crimes, they, they don't even go to the police. That is straight from the Department of Justice, from the Department of Justice's own statistics. When I was in school, 50% was an F, right? Like that's the starting point. <laughs> yeah. Another half yeah. of those drop off before grand jury or the first evidentiary hearing in whatever jurisdictions. One statistic you cite a lot is that 75% of people don't call the police to report when a crime happens to them. Is that because they actually don't believe the system can deliver what they want? Yes. Survivors... And I say this as a survivor myself. I've survived rape. I've survived assault. I've lost loved ones to murder. I've mm. loved many people who've gone through this kind of pain, right? So this is not theoretical for me. And we are, of course, deeply emotional. Like we feel, the best way I've been described, we feel lost, like so profound. We'd like wring out our bones to be free of it from mm. the marrow there. And we feel fear so all-consuming that at night, in the safety of our beds, in the arms of the people we trust most, we can't fall asleep. And when exhaustion finally takes us, we wake from it with nightmares. Hmm. We feel rage so all-consuming. It makes us unrecognizable even to ourselves. But at the end of the day, we're pragmatic. And there's two things hmm. we can't stand. We can't stand the idea of going through it again. And we can't stand the idea of someone else going through it. Hmm. Those things are intolerable to us as survivors. And so if we're presented with options... We will always choose the option that's going to prevent those things we don't stand. Mm. So 75% of victims opt out of that system entirely. They're like, the police will not believe me. And they will not be able to protect me from that violence. And I know that because I've seen a thousand times their failure to do that. 75% don't call. That remainder are the group of people we reach out to at Common Justice. And even of those people who elected to participate in the criminal legal system, 90% of them say yes to us. 90%. Wow. It's not mercy. It's not because they want to shrink the footprint of mass incarceration. It's because they want to survive. Wow. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk to Danielle about her own personal journey into this work.
you can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Welcome back to Some of My Best Friends Are. And so, Danielle, you and I have talked about how this work is very personal to you, as well as obviously very political. But your own experience as a victim of violence is something that I asked you, was it okay for us to talk about on this show? Because I think it's an important way for listeners to understand how you yourself, even as a young adult, committed Grand Theft Auto. That's right. I also committed some violence that I didn't get caught for, which is also typical. Mm. I mean, I was an adolescent. I was an adolescent who had experienced traumatic things. And so I was both foolish and dealing with the reverberations of trauma. And so... And in the the most extreme version, you know, I was brought up on multiple serious charges in the criminal Mm. legal system in Chicago. And I was... And how old were you at the time? 15. And I was given a slap on the wrist. It included community service, cleaning fire trucks. Like, it definitely didn't, like, heal my underlying trauma or shape my consequential decision making. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a criminal record, right? And at the same time... The people, the young Black people I knew and loved who were engaged in exactly the same behaviors as me faced very serious sentences, like some sentences Mm. that rolled up into their entire lives, right? And so I came to understand the racism of the criminal legal system as someone who benefited from it. And so I understood that it was then, 
It was my job to make that inequity my enemy and to find people who were fighting that inequity and to fight alongside them until we won or I died, whichever came first. Hmm. So Danielle, Khalil mentioned to me that you have a three-year-old son. That's great. Congratulations. <laughs> how do you talk to him about restorative justice? I- I'm really interested to know how you're how you're raising him with these values. I mean, so there are a few things. Like one is that we've been doing the restorative justice steps in my house since he was like a year and a half. You know, so <laughs> and those steps are you acknowledge what you did, acknowledge its impact, express remorse, make things as right as possible, ideally in a way defined by those harmed and commit to not doing it again. And so when he's tiny, it's like he throws a cherry at my head. I'm like, that made me sad because I asked you not (laughs) to do that. He said, you're sad. I say, yeah. He says, I'm sorry. I say, give me a kiss on my forehead. He kisses me. He said, I'll try not to do it again. Done, right? It's a eight Mm. second process. I mean, one of the things I love about restorative justice is it's just fiercely proportionate, right? And so he does this all the time and is used to it. He has come to expect it from his three-year-old peers who are not all used to it. And then we also, you know, I talked to him about my work is getting people free. And mm-hmm. and what does that mean to, to a three-year-old? How, did, how are you explaining it? What- so for a while, we talked about freedom as people being able to be with the people they loved, right? Drawing again on Andrea James's wisdom that freedom is mostly about connection, not about mm-hmm. getting to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And for a while, for I would say, you know, six months or a year of him being able to talk about getting people free in some vague way, he never asked this question that he finally asked a couple, maybe a month ago, where he said, Mama, where are people when wow. they're not free? Interesting. Wow. Um, and I said, in jail. And we had had a, someone we know and love who was recently incarcerated. And he'd heard us talking about it. I think that's part of what brought this mm-hmm. into focus for him. And he said you know, did the police take him from his Mm. home? And I said, yeah. And he said, how do people get to jail? And I said, Hmm. usually they drive people there Hmm. in a bus. And he said, could he get off the bus? And I said, no. And he said, is jail inside or outside? And I said, it's inside, baby. It's like a lot of rooms and people are in that either by themselves or with some other people and they lock the doors. And he said, do they lock the doors from the inside or the outside? And I said, from the outside. And he said, is there a window in that room? And I said, sometimes there's a window. And he said, well, if there's a window, even if he can't see, he could call out and say, I love you. And they could yell, I love Mm, you, Papa, mm. back. Wow. And, you know, first I'm like, there's something about his instinct to find like the place, the crack in the structure where love can get through. Right. He's like, it's not going to be the bus. It's not the lock. It opens. He's like, the window's going to be the thing. Right. There's something in us, I think, as people. It's so literal. Right. It's such it's such a crystal clear expression of of like hope and light uh, and connection, as you describe. And none of what I described about prison is disputable. Like I didn't say, baby, it's the grandchild of slavery. It's white supremacy culture (laughs) writ large. You know, I'm just like it was just it was just literal stuff. And to him, it's horrifying because it's not been normalized yet, right? And just the logistics of it, I think, remind us of like who we've allowed ourselves to become. That anybody who is not raising their child to fight mm-hmm. this has to raise their child to yeah. accept this. Right? Like those are the choices. 
and to become a people where mostly what we have to do is raise our children to accept this, I think is devastating for all of us. So Danielle, I'm writing a book in a way about the parole system. Um, it's called Correction. And it's about parole boards. It's about people who come up for parole. It's about people who got out on parole. And, you know, I mean, in a way, it's an advertisement for restorative justice. You know, I've been going to these parole mm-hmm. hearings. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I see families who are victims who have been coming mm-hmm. to parole hearings for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And 40 years of punishment have happened. Somebody has been in prison for 50 mm-hmm. years. And they still feel as unsatisfied and hurt Mm -hmm. and traumatized as they Mm -hmm. did at the beginning, that the prison system has given them nothing. In writing my book, I looked at a ton of victim impact statements to parole boards, right? And to your point, right, the number of them that say, I feel exactly the same way I did on that day. Exactly Mm -hmm. the same way. And that is not how healed and healing people feel. And what they ask for is more punishment because that's the only option that's been offered to them, as you put it. That's right. And imagine yeah. like if you had been on the same meds for 40 years and your pain mm. was unrelenting, undiminished, and you went to your doctor and they just wrote you a refill, like eventually you would be like, this doctor is trash. These meds mm. are trash, right? And I think shame on all of us for not having considered in the face of what you're describing this question of like, what should we be doing instead for these people who have suffered such horrible harm? What should we be doing for them instead of this punishment of this person that is accruing as absolutely nothing to them in the end, as absolutely nothing of worth. And it's much easier to get stories to break through than to fully change everybody's minds. And so in part, that makes me very hopeful about our chances to really upend this culturally. Danielle, you and I've talked about this, and I've talked to Ben separately. I mean, I'm you know I'm I'm honored to be in this conversation with the two of you who have spent a ton of time up close and personal with people. I mean, the kind of work I do is you know is like book research, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm not as close to the actual lives that you all touch. And yet, you get paid and... the big bucks. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so. My question is, like, I also know that each of you at times expresses deep pessimism or maybe to say skepticism about what white Americans are capable of when it comes to achieving change at scale. And I've heard you, Danielle, talk about, you know, guilt and how it shows up in this mass incarceration crisis. Yeah, so I think we've seen extraordinary pushback to the built power of especially black and brown communities resisting the permanence, dominance, expansion of mass incarceration in America, right? And I think we see a a deep protection of a status quo that some white people will shift, right? Some white people will come to understand that if it, even though it may not be in our material interest, it's in the interest of our humanity to live in a world that is more equitable. And we will choose that, right? We will choose those values over particular material gain, right? Like that will happen. And some will not, partly because white supremacy culture, like white culture is so retributive and so narrow and so transactional in so many ways that our own cultural framework doesn't allow for a pathway of repair, right? We only know a pathway of punishment. Mm -hmm. The catch 22 in it for me is that as someone who does work on shame all the time, 
the only pathway I've ever found out of shame is accountability. The only one. Mm. You know, just like when we're on the receiving end of, you know, when we lose somebody, we know there's a process, there's like a grieving process and stages of grief. And those things are, are the things that restore us to, to our connection with one another, to our sense of self-love, to our sense of dignity, right? Like we get through those, we do those things through our grief work. And I really, I think accountability is the corollary to grief for those of us who have caused harm that it's in the process of acknowledgement and repair that we regain our dignity, our connection, our self-worth. Yeah. I think why people are ashamed of what we have done and we are terrified at the prospect of being ashamed you know, of our own children being ashamed of us, right? And that we do what ashamed people do, which is we commit violence. We do it interpersonally, we do it. And as white people, because we have access to systems and structures, we do it systematically too. Yeah. And we do it by erasure, yeah. For my part, I am definitely full of my pessimism. And I mean, especially seeing these last couple of years, you know, first we have George Floyd and this promise, and then all of the retrenchment on crime, all the tough on crime stuff that has happened since. But listening to you, Danielle, the reason when you were talking about the doing restorative justice practices with your with your child, with your son, there's something so natural about that and so normal that as long as you don't think of an, another person as an abstraction, as some some scary other, like that 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 idea, even the analogy of how we hold our own children, our own families accountable, just makes so much sense. And I, I think about what you do and how how that idea could spread. And at least I'm hearing, it sounds like even in this moment of, of retrenchment and backlash, it sounds like you're expanding from Brooklyn to other boroughs, correct? That's right. And we're starting to support more and more groups doing aligned things nationally. I think the range of possibilities in this country is rapidly and vastly widening. Hmm. Like the best and worst are almost as far apart as they've been in a historical moment that I know. But I'm with Khalil Muhammad as historian, so I'm cautious about making too broad a claim about the past in this person's presence. Well, you have you have totally inspired me. Uh, and and, and <laughs> anyone listening to this conversation knows that uh, that's not easily done in light of how I do think about the past and how sticky it is. Uh, but Danielle, just so happy that you were able to be with us today and to share your work, your vision, uh, your experiences. Um, your your little guy is going to be mm -hmm. something special, just like his mommy. <laughs> and, and if we could just uh, clone both of you, the world would be a better place. Thank you so much for all of this and for all of your really incredible work. Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. Yeah, this conversation just, I think, is so valuable. It reminds me why it's so important to be hopeful, because just reading the newspapers and listening to politicians isn't really the best way to know what's going on in this big, big, big country. And in light of what we talked about last season, about our experiences in Europe and seeing how people are treated with dignity, how they're treated as individuals. In prisons in other countries, yeah. That's right. The whole purpose of restoring them to humanity, even though that's happening inside of the bars, kind of the point is that people have dignity at all times, and it's inviolable. And so much of what Danielle Sered is about is that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just sort of even repeat what we said at the beginning is that 
you know, the work that she's doing is talking about people who committed violent crimes and people who suffered from violent crimes. And that's where we as a country, we haven't worked in that space. We're not doing it enough. And we just had a long ass conversation about how you actually can. And then on both sides of that, people are better by coming together and not relying on on prisons. Yeah, like literally in, in the kind of language of economists, <laughs> better outcomes on both sides of the equation. It's a total win-win. And so beautifully, she, she put it. I mean, uh, you know, just like, don't people deserve that? Yeah, thank God she's not an economist. <laughs> yeah, well, Khalil, love you. <laughs> love you too, man. <laughs> All right. All right. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Danielle, I didn't hear your response to the question. I'm embarrassed, but is it Sarid? Oh, it's Sarid. <laughs> Nobody knows. Sarid. It's never been All the right. fight I've decided to pick of the things I want to get right in this country. <laughs> Pronunciation. My yeah. name never rose. In seventh grade, I learned I had to fight because my seventh grade yearbook listed me as Kalua Muhammad. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> no. Not even close. And it's not because you had a reputation for like drinking kind of weird coffee type booze in class. <laughs> not in seventh grade. Open a limited time 11 month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. 
We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.